Hello, and welcome to Radio KBPV, a podcast for tales of the Kootenai Brown Pioneer Village. This is the Talking Tombstones edition, recorded at the Fort McLeod Union Cemetery, August 24th, 2019. Next up, my colleague at Kootenai Brown Pioneer Village, historian and curator Farley Wuth, will introduce myself, Gord Tolton to discuss the uh, life of Donald Watson Davis. So our next uh, presentation is on D.W. Davis, and Gord Tolton will be reading that one. I used to do a lot of research on the scoundrels of Fort Wopup, and D.W. Davis was one of my favorite. Okay, Donald Watson Davis. My name is Donald Watson Davis. I see that I am resting near the mounted police plot. That's fitting. Because people like myself and my whiskey trading colleagues are the reason those Mounties came to Fort McLeod. But I never spent a minute in their custody. In fact, not long after their arrival, I was making good money from their business. And before my work was done, the Canadian Mounties would, in a way, be working for me. So sit back and listen to my story, but (laughs) keep a hand on your wallet. I was born in Vermont in 1845. Too young for the Civil War, I graduated from a business college in Poughkeepsie, New York. I saw my future in the West and I enrolled with the United States Army to get there. As a trained bookkeeper, I was posted as the sutler's clerk at the infantry post at Fort Shaw, Montana, not too far from Great Falls, in 1868. I demonstrated an acumen with figures in my service post with the achievement of a personal goal. In a letter home, I told my father I planned to save $1,000 before I was to take my discharge in 1870. I could not do that, however, on a monthly wage of $26.85. But I performed this fiscal miracle by cashing soldiers' paychecks and taking a percentage for the services. I would also appear at many a regimental poker game, cleaning up what was left of the soldiers' meager wages. While working at Fort Shaw, I made the acquaintance of many local characters. Among them was the Blackfoot trader John J. Healy, who was thinking of going across the border. Now, I'm not going to implicate myself or Mr. Healy, but the Army noticed one winter, winter that some unspecified goods were missing from the Fort Shaw supply stores. A couple of gents went to jail when the trail led back to the Healy farm, but Johnny was not implicated. Neither was anyone working in the Army Depot, and that's all I have to say about that. But once I'd obtained my Army discharge in April 1870, Healy had established a business franchise in Canada called Fort Whoopa. This ex-soldier took a job with the Hamilton and Healy trading firm in a managerial capacity that offered the astronomical wage of $150 per month with room and board. That's better than writing. I knew how hard I'd have to work elsewhere to enjoy that, to attain that kind of scratch which is what a man would have to work like a slave on a farm for six months. I also left the States without repaying a $150 loan made to me by trader Tom Power. So I moved to Whoop Up, where my business college background brought a rare bit of educated civility to the camp mentality of the trade. The Blackfoot called me Tall Man, and in the country fashion, I curried favor with the Kainai Chief Red Crow by taking his sister, Mikitsi Puxa known in English as Revenge Walker, as my bride. I had five children with Revenge Walker, Jeff, Johnny, Julie, Julia, and Charlie, and one girl that even I have forgotten her name. And so was the McLeod history book. Healy had a winter trading post on the Elbow River, pretty much what, near what is now downtown Calgary, 
established by the bad-tempered Fred Canoose. Canoose had made a mess of the operation and instigated a battle on the site that led to deaths on both indigenous and trader sites and left Fred badly injured. Healy did not abandon the Elbow River, though, instead and sent me, the tall man, north to manage the post and salvage affairs. Healy always said I was his best man among the traders working for him, and unlike Canoose, I could show some humanity. Once in 1873, a younger warrior visiting Elbow River to trade and showed up wounded with a bullet hole in the soldier, shoulder and his thumb and his wrist slashed open with a knife. He refused any treatment, so I finished the trade and the warrior left. But then we heard shots from the outside, and the same guy, fella, returned this time with a bullet hole in his chest. Well, I took him in, and Revenge Walker treated the wound the best she could. We kept him in quarters until he healed up. That reporter returned later and gave me a horse. Highest honor you could have in the Blackfoot value system. But make no doubt, behind my cool facade, I could be deadly as any wolfer. In my own words, as I told my father, my work is not without danger as it is trading with Indians, although I have never been hurt or scared yet, had to kill two last winter in the act of stealing horses. At the end of winter in 1874, I closed up the shop at Elbow River and returned south with over 2,000 buffalo robes and took over management of Fort Hoop Up for Healy, who was now operating new businesses in Montana. In the summer of 1874, we heard that the Canadian government was finally taking interest in the land it acquired years before, and the Boundary Commission was coming through to survey and locate the 49th parallel. We loaded up wagons and sold goods to the British and American engineers who were drawing the line from the Sweetgrass Hills to the Rocky Mountains up where old, good old Kootenay Brown lived. We'd just come back from the border when we returned to Whoop Up to find the Reverend John McDougall visiting with old Gladstone. He was on a mission for the Canadian government to tell the indigenous folk and us that a red-clad army was on its way into the country and we'd soon be out of business. Well, I wasn't very impressed with either Parson or his mission, and I told that preacher, you're looking for police? Well, I can tell you there will be no amount of police in the country this year. You can just bet on that, I can tell you. Parson John, we will flood this country for one more year with whiskey. Then I cooled down, thought it out, and said, well, when this is done, we will drop into line and obey the law. But till then, we'll do as we damned well, please. When the police did arrive a couple of months later, my tone changed a little bit. I was there with Dave Akers, Will Gladstone, Charlie Shaft, and our native families when Colonel James McLeod and our old scout Jerry Potts approached the gate and asked for a parley. Well, we invited the man, and Akers even cooked dinner for the officers, but McLeod didn't have much use for me. We told him we'd sell the place for $10,000. Instead, he moved on and built his own fort, but not before renting the Mounties a room to use as a two-man outpost. They'd be in those quarters until 1888. So I reckon that I did drop into line all right. We were out of the illegal whiskey business, but I began to consider what else those Mounties would need to purchase and who would be selling it to them. They made a deal with old Nick Sharon to get his hard-mined coal, but McLeod had trouble doing business with me and buying the grass hay we had stockpiled, and he complained that I wouldn't come down in my price. Too bad, Colonel. Go find your own feed. And he did, from Whoop Up's competitor at the mouth of Willow Creek, probably right where we're standing. In chatting with Charlie Conrad, the manager for the IG Baker Company at Fort Benton, Montana, I soon realized that Indian traders like Healy were the small fry of the coming business, and I quit Healy to manage the Baker's company's business as the new town popped up around the police post at Fort McLeod. 
Charlie had ran the, the post for the Baker Company just across the river from here at Camp Okeekun, but he wanted to steer the firm into the new role fulfilling supply contracts for the Canadian government. So I took up the challenge and built the new IG Baker store just steps from Fort McLeod where the Mounties would have to buy their goods from us. I was instrumental in developing Fort Benton's booming trade with the Canadian government and supplying the Mounted Police, the Indian Department, as well as supplying goods and services to the ranching industry. Soon I was running the entire Canadian operation. We built stores at Calgary, High River, Lethbridge, and Fort Walsh. Ultimately, the firm would be sold to the Hudson's Bay Company around 1890. Like many businesses of the area, I had financial interest in the livestock industry and as a partner with Frank Strong. While all this activity made me a relatively wealthy man and a leader on the social ladder, but my familial relationships changed. Revenge Walker returned to her people with her children, though I did see to have all of my mixed blood children educated at the school in McLeod. Of them, Jeff and Johnny served Canada in the South African War, and Charlie rose to lead the Bloods as a chief. I remarried to Lily Greer, a schoolteacher from Ontario, and raised a second family as my business and social status rose. Descendants of my children, Greer Ryder, Donald, Darrell, and Donovan, are still around Fort McLeod, under us. In 1887, the Northwest Tor Territories was allowed to elect members for each of its districts. Alberta District was the most populous and took the basic shape it has now, though it bordered at the east around Grassy Lake, the north between Edmonton and Athabasca. I was always terribly ambitious and always on the ready to change a stance and reinvent myself at a moment's notice. As such, it's easy to believe I'd enter politics. I decided the challenge for the seat. My opponent was none other than James Hardesty, myself of the Hudson's Bay Company, who had little use for the likes of me. So it was a contentious race. But with the help of a wagon load of liquor, I became Alberta's first member of parliament to Ottawa, <laughs> beginning a great tradition that should carry on today. An election coming up, isn't there? Yeah, okay. <laughs> In 1896, the Klondike Gold Rush was on, and I kept in contact with pals from the old days, like J.J., who'd built a merchant empire in Alaska and the Yukon, and the Mountie James Walsh, who became the gold commissioner up there. A lot of people, money, goods, and gold was crossing the international boundary line at many different points, and the Canadian government stood to lose a lot of revenue without someone to monitor the activity. So after two terms and with another election likely coming on, I resigned my seat in Parliament, and was fortunate enough to be appointed Collector of Customs at Dawson City, Yukon. Imagine that, an old member of parliament getting a government job. I was acquainted with many old Montana friends seeking their fortunes also as their hair turned gray. I was one of the few whiskey traders who hadn't come west for the gold, but I was staying for the opportunity to make money here easy and not have to work like they do in the States. After six years with the Customs Department, I retired to Dawson City, where I died in 1906 after a long illness. Lillian and the children returned south, where my heirs have all become leading citizens, both on the Blood Reserve and here in Fort McLeod.